1: Welcome to the New Books
0: Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Yvette Taylor about working class queers, time, place and politics. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This is a fascinating book uh, that, that does a lot of things at once, actually. I think it's got contributions to class analysis um, I think it's got uh, reflections on methods. It's got a lot of stuff about teaching and how we kind of, um, you know, share knowledge and, and how knowledge is produced. But it's also, um, I, I think, a kind of a story of, of your own career um, as, as well, really, you know, a, a sort of um, wealth and, and, and kind of history um, of your work in this area. And I suppose the place to start probably is, is with that. Um, and I'm keen to know kind of where this book fits in with sort of your research, several research projects you talk about in the book, and, and your sort of career to date.
1: Mm, that's such a great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, I think in many ways this book is is my research, my projects, and my career over the last twenty years. And um, um, there's a lot of differences in that, and I can't, you know, I can't chart all of that, that wouldn't be interesting in itself necessarily. It's not just about me. But within that, um, I think feminist inquiry has often started from that sense of your positioning in the world. Um, Where do you come from? Um, Where do you stand? Um, And I try to make a case for where I stand. And I hope I name that as a shifting rather than a static place. So to map some of those changes over the career course, over the life course, um, who is allowed to change and take up space, what gets stuck. And so some of the spaces that I think about are, and the spaces that I've also moved through, are, for example, the council estates, or the archive or the classroom, the feminist classroom, and academia more, more generally. And... I think within those places i try to look at what um, being or identifying as working class and queer has meant over the last 20 years of doing research i would say in by for as a working class queer and i look through different projects but but as but working class queers remains a continuous um, through line through those projects and i ask um, what it means to find a place as a researcher or an academic and a writer and to think about that as an intersectional place rather than a static. So uh, the the subtitle of the book is um, Time, Place and Politics. So hopefully capture some of those movements too. And I think when I think about my own place, my own positionality and interviewee's sense of place I always um, one of the quotes from an interview comes to mind quite fast it's um, Alicia who says this and she says something to the effect of um, you know I, I imagine my place is not fitting in and sometimes not fitting in means that the world is not for you and I think there's different ways of thinking about that misfit and I try to think about it as um productive rather than reductive and rather than just meaning that say working class queers are stuck because that's not the only or necessarily the best story to tell. Um, So I've kind of hinted at my place and uh, my movement through academia as a researcher and um, one of my positionings um, and I talk about this in the book is as as a recipient of a full higher education maintenance grant in the 90s which, of course, has been retracted ever since. And I think, despite that, we do see um, hashtags activism on first generation working class academics. And I think that begins to kind of pull out some of the complexities of saying um, that you're working class and working classness. Um, so, in naming some of those movements, I I've been concerned with like through time what is a queer left feminist voice or politics um, and how can we link up struggles across time and place so can we connect, see um, rebel Dyke um, stories um, from the film production to a more trans inclusive um, feminist activism and how do we talk how do we mobilize that as an academic production? To um, so in the last chapter i talk about moving towards a working class queer reading list is not uh, is not something i grew up with and um, growing up in um, the 80s at the time of section 28 in the uk so there are some of the um, places i start with and opening the book
0: i wonder as well if you'd say a bit about methods partially because um, I, I think a concern with, with methods runs right the way through the book, actually. And, and even, you know, you, you've talked about uh, developing the idea of a reading list uh, right at the very end of the book. You know, this is as much a kind of uh, methodological um, intervention, you know, building a, a sort of a, a canon as it is um, sort of what would be the term? um pedagogical um, sort, of, sort of intervention as well um, but right at the start of the book I, I suppose methods are kind of most of the four partially um, when you're introducing if not the problem but I, I suppose kind of queering categories like um, class and, and, and methods for research in class um, but also um, giving hints about some of the ways you you've approached the various projects that underpin the book's analysis so yeah i wonder if you just say a bit about sort of what sort of methods you've been using for researching working class quits yeah
1: yeah so um it's mostly based on in-depth interviews across that 20-year period so from 2001 to 2021 and it's across the uk so scotland and england mostly but also wales and northern ireland Um, And these are also places that I've lived in as a resident. um, I've been part of, I've even done what what might be seen as maybe uh, impact or outreach work. Um, And I do query that in the book um, to like, uh, how far can we extend our reach as researchers? Um, And I'd maybe put in a wee caveat in that that, (laughs) reach across time and space too, Um, So I'm deliberately locating across the the UK, but I'm not claiming to have gone sort of everywhere in that. And I'm curious about uh, what taking up space or producing data comes to mean and what, say, spaces, researchers, disciplines are seen as niche, um, regional, national or global. So, um, in the book I, I created the we or small space um because sometimes Scotland in its entirety can be collapsed as a we place and, and and some other spaces are presumed as big ones say Manchester or London in terms of their um seen spaces or lgbtq plus um life so I I, th- I do think about Britishness within those constructs too. And I also um want to think about what counts as queer class data, something maybe always in dispute. And so the book opens with um I use archive archival material too, and the book opens with um two quotes from the archives, and it's come from um feminist uh, newsletters and their their discussion pages across several issues, which is about how people are defining class and how they're using it and misusing it, maybe. One of the extracts is a claim uh, for being a working-class woman, and it opens like that. I'm a working-class woman. Okay. Um, And it's answered by a complication of middle-classness, and that person is saying, well, middle-class life is not a bed of roses either. And I think... We begin to see some of the complicatedness of class around incomes, around um, moral judgment, around stigma, around how people sound um, and what they wear, is ever happening, happening then and happening now. Um, and I think those um, classes, as, as say bad data or deficit data, um, can be quite reductive. That question that I dwell on too, around where are you from, has been a. a um, an immediate signifier of class and always been loaded, I think, for certain people. Um, in one of the workshops I talk about how that's done in, in another kind of classroom. What kind of words do we associate with, with class? What kind of spaces would we not go into? And who is not who's not in the room? And maybe we'll talk about that a bit more in relation to race um, as well and who comes forward when as researchers we put calls for participants out there in the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you've already sort of flagged um, a whole bunch of um, themes that come up in, in, in very uh, detailed uh, analysis later on in the book. You know, place is, is really, really important. Um, you've, you've talked about um, race. And I think one of the things that it's, it's worth um, sort of flagging to the listeners is that as much as you've got, you know, a kind of 20-year um, history of research in the area, and I guess you know a kind of twenty-year, um, almost kind of archive of data. The book is very much engaged with where we are now um, in terms of contemporary social issues, and one of those things is the impact of um, that the pandemic on working-class queers. And I was fascinated, perhaps actually in in a variety of different ways. You know, um, there was I suppose. story we'd expect in terms of the extremely sort of negative impacts particularly on those living with chronic conditions and you know not just Britain but you know in some ways global states failure to to properly adapt social life and and social conditions to recognize chronic conditions but also there are stories of kind of mutual aid and almost kind of things like kinship and, and, and support so Under that kind of, tell me about the impact of the pandemic, I wonder if you could tease out those two themes, of chronic conditions and and mutual aid.
1: These are are great questions. Um, So I was asked by the Scottish Parliament to um, write a report on um, LGBT life and the pandemic, and it was interesting to be asked um, to do that at the time where I was kind of being very critical of state-led solutions and looking to... um, Non non-state solutions instead, um, and um, yeah, basically working working with the Scottish Parliament. Um, so I really like I really take serious the way that um, LGBTQ plus life can be about inequality and risk. But I also wanted to kind of complicate that as just as more than a category of risk so as you're suggesting i think like what opportunities for agency exists at that moment and i think we saw um a lot of queer groups um being visible and political and active and acting to support one another but i was a little bit cautious about that being too celebratory where um lgbt plus organizations have has historically and in the current and current times Um, been reliant on a lot of voluntary um, contributions, often under-resourced, and DIY is is never enough. So I wanted to appreciate that sort of risk and agency and pragmatism in the ways that people kind of get by, but who's who's recognised as getting by? And so um, one of the um, interviews that I spend some time in in that chapter is Jocelyn um, and she is an NHS worker um, from the Philippines and she is living with other women of colour workers and um, and in a way, they're practising a mutual aid of sorts. Um, Jasleen sends money back home. She obviously can't exist in a kind of a domestic bubble at the time where there's a travel ban and, and she can't uh, travel home. So I wanted to use Jasleen's story to think about what's recognised as mutual aid um, too and... May we think about the way that certain communities have always had to practice mutual aid when it hasn't been kind of thought of as such or maybe recognized as a political um, strategy? So, um, Jocelyn's story, I think, also makes us pause on uh, the chronic structural conditions rather than chronic um, conditions um, being associated with the disabled individual. So we can think about the inequalities that um, she's facing as part of that riskier um, chronic condition of intersecting structural inequality more globally. Um, I think, you know, Jocelyn's story is is one of agency and humor and um, Jasleen is also somebody who whose kind of first words to me as interviewer was, you know, I'm something like I'm working class and I'm queer, but I'm not quite too sure about the British point um, because, she, because she hadn't been here. She said, she, I haven't been here long enough. And so it's also interesting in terms of thinking about who comes forward as interviewees and who has that sort of entitlement to talk or maybe to tell their story or to think that their story would be listened to, I think.
0: perfectly encapsulates um, what follows, actually, in, in terms of thinking about... Um, the idea of sort of national identity, places, spaces. Um, You've already talked a bit about Scottishness. And yeah, I I quite like that idea of, you know, Scotland having this kind of sense of being, you know, a small area for study versus, you know, these kind of big English cities, which are seen to be kind of, you know, huge um, sort of uh, filled with possibilities um, for, for research. On working class queers, and and to sort of formulate that into into an actual question for you, I, I wonder where place matters and and why places is kind of important Mm. in the book's analysis
1: yeah yeah um now i I tell my own story again as somebody who returned to scotland in um the end of 2015 after the independence referendum um and so moving from that sort of generically scottish person in london where the question of where are you from could be answered by an easy well scotland to suddenly feeling um back at the scene of the crime if you like and that um people would know exactly where it came from as soon as it was announced and there's all sorts of interesting you know interpersonal moment, exchanges in that moment um you know your place can be somewhere you're proud of but it can be a place of shame and embarrassment and you know even middle class people um, become embarrassed about coming from middle class areas too so that had to be um, navigated again I came back to Scotland at a moment where it was also announcing itself as world-leading in terms of LGBT equalities, and I was there uh, really um, sceptical about that. Um, and that was a story that I tried to um, uh, unpick via um, via via different interviews. But I, I think Farage, again, some just spend a wee bit more time on, and, and Farage definitely had a sense of um, Scotland as a space of safety. But in a way, Farge was compelled to tell that story while his um, fa- um, asylum status was pending and he wasn't fully um, recognised in um, of. Uh, the, the state and didn't have the same benefits, for example, couldn't work um, while claiming asylum. And they um, stayed with their ch- what they called their church family, having converted from... Um, to, to Christianity from Islam. So, and, and this, as far as somebody who didn't declare their trans status of some, on their asylum application. So I think this is quite a complicated um, story. It's a story that repeats um, the idea of LGBTQ plus progression and sort of an alignment with um, best or better countries. It's that sort of progression narrative of things getting better and and by comparison, other people in other places are seen as homophobic and transphobic, and that's a that's a story that exists beyond Farge. Of course, it's perpetuated um, by by the states, um, and. You know, I think Farge's story contrasts um, with many interviews in that chapter where some are saying this is a moment of hope. Um, Scotland didn't vote for Brexit and making a claim to sort of um, being proximate politically to Europe and a a sort of uh, rainbow Europe as opposed to what was named sometimes as a toxic Britishness or a toxic Englishness. And I think those um, claims for sameness and difference do interest in things. Um, and I'm quite interested in the way that I think comes through interview stories about the way that Scotland can um, maybe claim a difference specifically from Englishness to, um, to lay claims to civic um, and democracy that sort of uh, evades its own implicating this in um, colonialism and and, um, current day racism
0: Where does race fit actually because that point I suppose about some of the um, negotiations um, and investments in in Scottish uh, identity that often really you know harshly marginalises questions of as you've mentioned uh, colonialism but also more more generally race Where, where, where does race I guess kind of fit uh with the story you're trying to tell of working class queer,
1: yeah yeah it's a really great question and um i think one way i could do it and i, I hope i have is um uh, selecting certain um accounts that make that uh, that make that um, that make the place of race really obvious so we've had we've heard about fires in terms of being an asylum seeker experience experiencing racist um processes of migration border cl- crossing as a classed and um, racialized experience and we've heard about jocelyn as a um, racialized worker who has no easy access say to seen spaces it's not necessarily recognizes for them in, like a mutual aid group or a family of choice we might um uh, we might recognize from um lgbt literature and um you know, as I've said um can't can't um travel and can't be part of a, a queer bubble um, during the pandemic I think we there's there's many other accounts so there's um Alicia's long-term skepticism uh, of Scotland as a place of civic democracy because she um currently experiences racism in Scotland and that's like a long-standing um experience and you know I think this resonates with, say, Asifa's story, and Asifa's somebody that I interviewed almost two decades before Alicia, in a different place in Manchester, but still, like um, like Alicia talked about, the, the increase specifically in Islamophobia, and in Alicia's case, that was a misrecognition, but it's nonetheless um, in terms of being misrecognised as a Muslim woman, but nonetheless um, damaging, and I think if we leap a little bit forward um, and we go to another uh, place um, and that, that would be the Scottish Highlands and we hear from Nika who who grew up as a mixed race trans uh, person in in the Highlands. And she says something like, um, you know, basically you're going to hear a lot about race and, um, and trans for me because it's like bread and butter uh, to me and those, those accounts I think really um, stand out but I also wrestled with the sort of uh, weights um, that I'm placing on, on those interviews and, and others in the book like I don't think the respondents of colour should carry the weight um, of race or become the exemplars of, of the case. And again, I talk a little bit about the weight of the case or the weight of being data. And so I want to always implicate us all and in including myself as researcher and um, and one of the ways I think about that is who comes forward when you put out research calls, and typically, um, some groups are overrepresented. So in queer projects, it might be white, middle class, cis men, um, that are overrepresented. So how do we um hold the door open um for other respondents that might not be so confident or entitled to come to come forward? And I think. So I think another way of thinking about that is to think about the theoretically um, the place of race to beyond, you know, beyond our respondents. Um, and I think intersectionality as a frame has always insisted that we think about these categories together rather than rather than separately or as a fit. So um as as a as um as additives, so we we can think about this in terms of, say, the UK Equality Act, which has a, a list of protected characteristics enshrined in law. So it's um it's about um, being anti discriminationary in in terms of say, um gender or sexuality or race and religion. And I think sometimes these protected characteristics are pitted against each other. They're seen as contrasting. Um. So. I want to think about these um, at the same time and that, and that is always tricky um, and I think part of that is um, saying that this is a practice, it's not static, it can never be completed um, and it can never be for say, you know, the good white feminist to tick off to say, to say that they've done intersectionality but that they're... Um, Repeating this as a long term, as a long term practice, and I think um, one of the examples. And I'm always a little bit uh, cautious when I I, I um, give this example because it's an example of Will in the book, um, and and um, Will, as a pseudonym, like call all my interviews that I've talked about. And Will talks about. Um, being intersectional so deploys that intersectional I, and the I am intersectional. You know, I um, I read and then lists off, uh, reads off a list of um, readings and um, sort of political involvements and um, you know what their Twitter status says. And I think at the time where intersectionality is used as a hashtag, I think we can be a bit skeptical about like who owns it. You know, who can say that they're an that they are and intersectionality and intersectional and and how can we force ourselves to keep returning to it as a a practice
0: yeah i mean that comes up really clearly in the the penultimate chapter of the book actually where you're thinking about how you actually you know sort of do research and and represent lives particularly over a 20-year period and and, and before sort of maybe touching on that or, or developing that um, I'm interested in how, I, I suppose, everything in the book comes together and, and, and plays out when we're thinking about the current context. You know, we have talked already about uh, the kind of pandemic and the post-pandemic moment. But the other thing the book is is doing is trying to think about what's happened with, you know, you can use the euphemism of, of austerity or, you know, the, effectively the kind of collapse of the state in various different ways uh since um 2010 um certainly you know possibly 2008 as well or or indeed in a kind of longer term context And, and i was struck by the way that um if i might be sort of careful here you know often when we're thinking about queer spaces um the sort of dominant uh discussion can be things like well you know gentrification closing um You know bars or kind of community spaces but actually you try and think much more kind of generally about things like the impact of austerity on parenting and families on religious institutions as well as um, more traditional kind of working class queer spaces and again to kind of formulate that as a question what what has been the impact of austerity and and i suppose like um how do you kind of grapple with that in the book
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a great question um and, you know, it was quite kind of a hard chapter to write. So because um, there's a lot going on in that period, there's a lot of supposedly um, steps forward in that sort of progressive imagining that there's the Equality Act and there's um, we moved from the Civil Partnership Act to same-sex marriage. So there's supposedly um, a lot of um, benefits and a lot of things to be celebrated. And, and at the same time... Um, We have um, huge welfare reforms that that mean um, profound cuts for disability benefits, there's the bedroom tax and I think there's a heightened moral discourse of stigmatising say the wrong um, kind of families which you know sociologically has rightfully um, Got a lot of attention. I'm thinking of um, Imogen Tyler's work, for example. And I think that that stigma and the figure of the single mother. And I, I want to think, well, how can we understand these processes as also queer and as also implicating queer lives? And one of the well, one of the ways that I try to manage that chapter and all that's going on in those years um, is to talk about different austerity scenes. And and that means um, scene space, parental scenes, and religious scenes, um, and um so scene space is not typically a place that um, parents uh, go to. And I talk about that. I talk about, I talk about that um, through. I think Fred's story and Fred is um, a wheelchair user, and um, and talks about. Um, being on the scene um, and not receiving the support from other queers and um, his wheelchair is referred to as a pram so it's that i think that um highlights highlights that um the way that scene space is only for certain kinds of users and again jasmine just to go back to, to back and forwards um is something that the book tries to do too. But Jaseline also talks about um being excluded from a rural walking group. So very different from these urban um imagines of great of a gay gay space. Um, she talks about turning up to the rural walking group and being asked, do you really know what this is this is for? Because she's not imagined um as as queer by other queers. Um, so there's the scene spaces, um, and these are places that I, you know, that I went into, and including, um, you know, the kind of sadder um, community spaces that we might actually wish we had back, because um, a lot of them have have now gone, um, and replaced with online spaces. Um, we we have other kind of spaces that um, parents. Um, can occupy and do do they do take up their space with some some um, people feel their entitlement to um, press for change, including in classrooms, um, and argue for LGBT inclusive literature, for example. And th- this is a real class. Um, Class story. I don't. I choose to foreground working class queers in the book. Um, I have over uh, those years interviewed um middle class um people um too, and so I really talk about that sense of kind of coming forward versus a sense of. I think one of my interviews speaks it of it as this this sense of being back in the margin despite um, the Equalities Act, um so. Moving between, you know, moving between scene spaces to parental spaces, there's a kind of disjuncture there, but there's complications um, too in terms of um, thinking about religious scenes. So again, religion religion can be imagined as something that's oppositional to sexuality um, and not a space um, of queerness. And so I look at the way that... Young people um, might think of themselves as religious and queer, and um, particularly at a time where um, the welfare state has retracted, might church um, this practice that young people call church hopping, um, and having a church family might that be a way to get by um, to get by and to access different kinds of emotional and material supports. And so, a couple of the people that I foreground in that section are Abby and Estelle and they're both um, young um, disabled queers who are also religious um, and their accounts uh, speak about the difficulties in um, occupying rural space and getting around and finding team spaces. But also the story of kind of family and having family supports what happens if you know if your family doesn't have that those resources. Um, and as well show a sort of political activism. They're both um, young um activists. And I think that also forces us to look again beyond, say, go to scene spaces.
0: I mean you, you talk quite a lot about questions of identity and, and sort of foregrounding identity. And and, and I guess so far we, we've been really kind of focused and, and I think, you know, obviously and rightly on, on the research in the book, but I was really struck by the way the book ends, which as you've sort of um, flagged already, is an attempt to build um, not just the reading list, but I think a whole range of different insights for, for teaching. Um, and I'm sort of intrigued by, I suppose, what you hope for with the book in in the, in the teaching context um both in terms of i guess you know the practicalities of there is literally a reading list at the end of the book that you know people can kind of pick up and, and engage with but i suppose kind of more, more generally in terms of intervening in debates that um are about or have relevance to the lives of working class queers
1: mm-hmm. yeah um, and quite deliberately in um, the reading list and um chapter which we might sort of if it was at the front of the book it might have been thought of um, or even called uh, you know the literature review that's kind of um where we often start um as you know as academics and we're told to read and then form an opinion but i think um I think part of my retelling of my occupation of different classrooms and different feminist classrooms. And I move, I call that, I think something like from the bottom reading group to the place of our own. So, you know, who is education and higher education ima- imagined for, um, and, um, you know, that that, that being a story about about class and, you um, who who then makes it onto the reading list? And I think that is that question of um, institutional recognition or institutionalization as the reading list is produced, um, you know, uh, and that can be disciplinary as well, like uh, read the degree, class series, these are X, Y, and Z. Um, queer theory is this, which might displace some long-standing uh, feminist contributions. So I think these are always complicated questions for feminism, which might, you know, it might also be a practice of uh, widening participation or a call for decolonization. And I think, um, so I moved I moved that chapter to the end, but it is, and as something that's always ongoing it's never it's never complete I do have a reading list um, and I I, I, you know I wanted to think through the texts that were really key for me as an undergraduate and like what I got out of them um, and how to you know compel me to read them again and and push me forward in trying to do you know feminist projects and be a feminist teacher and That reading list, (laughs) that reading list, by the way, and I don't want it just to be mine or, you know, as sitting on my CV, because, you know, as academics, we (laughs) are reading lists are sometimes, you know, their own productions too. So, uh, you know, ultimately, I want the book to have a life um, and for it to circulate in and beyond different um, classrooms. And we are teaching, uh, researching in in the context of a UK um, higher education strike action. And I think um, so that that itself materialises certain presences and absences. And and in part of that chapter, I use this idea of a out of office reply as a provocation um, to read uh, new and old feminist readings so it's like my automa- automatic reply um, in that context of strike a strike action.
0: I mean there's, there's loads of what we, we could talk about actually both in the context of something like the conditions of, of labour for the production of 20 years worth of, of projects and and research but also there are sort of individual um, kind of institutions that are really important uh, in the book places like Glasgow Women's Library there's you know sort of major theoretical contributions that, that come up when you're thinking about lesbian identity towards the end of the book but I, I guess we, we've given a sort of um, an overview of, of, of what the book is trying to do and the agenda the book is, is hopefully setting and it seems kind of a bit unfair to be like and what next? <laughs> but, you know, academic books take a while to produce and, and obviously this, um, you know, has got this um, situated element of, of, of being, um, you know, looking forward, but also being retrospective across several different projects. So what are you working on sort of, sort of now and, and, and what's going to be next in terms of your work? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so <laughs> thinking about what, what next and then... Yeah. And that question of um, go, going back to go forward. Um, funnily enough, um, my next project is going to be called Queer Futures, Alternative Models for Social Justice. And um, I was lucky enough to get some um, money uh, from the Royal Society of Edinburgh to do this over the next um, year or to at least, to at least start. And, and that project will be around ideas of um, volunteering, environmentalism and enterprise um, and amongst LGBTQ plus um, communities to really think through um, questions of doing things differently or, or doing things the same. And it will um, likely, um, definitely uh, involve questions of class. So I will still uh, be talking about working class careers. I, I know that I can't uh, title next project that because that title is now gone.